Good afternoon. My name is Michael Cannon, and I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. I want to welcome you to our forum on Medicare and, uh, and, and whatever happened to Medicare reform. We're in the midst of a presidential campaign. The uh, candidates have said a lot about how they would re reform health care, but they said very little about what might be the greatest challenge that we face in reforming health care in the United States, which is the problems presented by the federal Medicare program. Now, Medicare is, a, is the federal program that provides health insurance to uh, elderly Americans, those over age 65, as well as disabled Americans. And it presents a lot of problems, particularly in terms of the uh, cost of Medicare. It's growing rapidly, and it will soon um, – uh, or it, it is growing rapidly, and there's a gulf between the benefits that have been promised under Medicare and the uh, current revenue stream's ability to, uh, to meet those benefits. So in order to try to raise the profile of Medicare reform as an issue in the presidential campaign, we did, we've invited a couple of uh, the leading experts on Medicare to discuss uh, Medicare, what's going on uh, with the program, where, where and why does it need to be reformed. Uh, starting us off in our discussion of Medicare is going to be uh, Tom Saving, who's director of the Private Enterprise Research Center at Texas A&M University. Professor Saving is an economist. He's also uh, a former trustee of the Medicare program, was uh, trustee uh, for Medicare and Social Security for six years, I think it was? Seven. Um, seven years. And is also the author of uh, author or editor of at least three books on Medicare, uh, one entitled Medicare Reform Issues and Answers, another entitled The Economics of Medicare, and most recently, The Diagnosis and Treatment of Medicare, which was released last year. Um, following uh, Professor Saving will be Stu Gutterman of the Commonwealth Fund. Stu is the, and I want to make sure I get your title right, Stu, the Project Director of the Program for Medicare's Future, Close enough. Close enough, okay. And one of the, Stu is one of the co-authors of this publication that's been made available for you outside called Bending the Curve. Um, after uh, the, uh, our, our two guest speakers, I'll, I'll be following up with some of my thoughts on Medicare. Then we're going to open the uh, forum up for questions from the audience. And afterward, we'll invite you all to join us upstairs for luncheon in our winter garden. So with that, uh, Tom, if you want to start us off. Let me make sure that we've got your. That's not mine. That's not yours. <laughs> there we go. And if uh, and and Brian, if we can get the screen down, please. Oh, that's a detail, right? Right. You can't see it at all. Okay. All right. I usually like to have a. Is this this is working? Okay. I usually like to have a lapel mic because I think if someone's going to throw something at me, I can dodge them. But <laughs> and I don't like standing around. I'm a person who likes to keep moving. Uh, and. Uh, Okay, here we are. Now, see what we've got here going forward on Medicare reform. Let's see where we're, where we're headed. Do I know how to work this? Yeah, I do. All right. Let's take a look at uh, something that's important, and these are uh, two projections of Medicare sun funding shortfalls as, as a percent of federal income taxes. Uh, and what I've done is take the 50-year average of federal income taxes as a share of GDP to kind of project these things forward because neither the trustees nor the CBO projects them forward in this way. In fact, they both project them forward in a, in a way that I've tried to argue with my fellow trustees as percentages of GDP. One is they make them look small, but secondly, I said it's totally inappropriate to do that unless we're North Korea, where the dictator in North Korea owns the GDP and he's letting the public use some of it. Uh, 
In the United States, we own the GDP, and we're letting the government use some of it. And how much of it are we letting them use? I say that's federal income taxes. So that's a way of thinking about this anyway. But let's look at these two numbers. And as you can see right now, the Medicare funding shortfalls are like 11% or so of, of, G, of uh, federal income tax revenues. It's going to double in just 12 years. It's going to almost quadruple in 22 years. Uh, and then in these, and at the end, these two things deviate greatly, of course. You can see that uh, at the end of the 75-year period, according to our uh, the 2008 trustees report, I was no longer a public trustee by then, but all the assumptions I was involved in making those because the end of December is when my term ended. And as you'll notice, if you look at the summary of the many, of the last trustees report, there's no public trustees message because there are no public trustees. Uh, but anyway, 75% of federal income taxes would be devoted to uh, funding Medicare shortfalls. According to CBO, which is taking, I still think, a conservative approach to forecasting, they're looking at 124% percent of federal income tax revenues. Clearly, none of that can happen. And the question is, what's going to happen? Uh, if we add Social Security that I don't want to do that. I want to talk about uh, Medicare debt. And these are these big numbers, and I, and I don't want to spend much time on them. The thing that we do differently here is that instead of just looking at the way that, in fact, the trustees report does this, what we've done is to assume that the current share that of uh, federal revenues that are being transferred to Medicare would continue to rise. The, the share would stay the same. So actually, the transfers would rise as a normal course of events. Because otherwise, you 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 look at say funded programs that are not funded. For example, like the Department of Defense, everything would be an unfunded liability. Well, that's that doesn't make any sense. So what we've done here is to take the level of transfers that we now have, assume that they will stay the same share. So the transfers themselves will grow. They just won't grow as fast as healthcare expenditures because healthcare is rising faster than GDP, and and that's the only reason I have these two things. You know, CBO. If we uh, make assumptions about uh, how you extend things, healthcare is going to grow as fast as health as uh, GDP. You can see that we're looking at 121 trillion dollars or 85 trillion. I don't know that th those are not really what I want to talk about. Uh, they're just numbers to startle people versus their numbers to say something about what's going to happen. Now, the question is, if we don't do anything to these programs, and if we look at the projections that we have out there, what are they going to cost? How are, and how's a way of describing them? And one way of doing that is looking at the average tax rate increases that would be required to pay for Medicare deficits, assuming that non-entitlement expenditures are allowed to stay the same size. And I think that's an important way to talk about this because we're saying the federal government's not going to get smaller. Uh, and so what we're looking at is saying that it, we'd have to have a 10% rise in, uh, in all, in federal tax rates in the next 12 years, a 25% rise in 22 years, and in the end of this program, a 57% rise. And if you're looking at CBO's numbers, 110% rise. And there's a very distinct difference between what CBO is doing, essentially what we used to do before two years ago. And that is allow healthcare to continue to grow through the 75-year period, at at the, at the end, at least 1% faster than the GDP. And two years ago, we changed the way we did that as trustees, and we forced it to go back down to the, exactly the level of GDP growth at the end of the period, gradually doing that. And that's what makes the trustees look so much rosier than, than CBOs.
for example, another way of looking at this is to look at it as payroll taxes and say if we were going to use payroll taxes to pay for these deficits, what would the payroll taxes have to be? And for Social Security and Medicare, the trustees using their numbers, it'd be like 35 percent, 38%, 37% at the end of the period. With CBO, it'd be about 50% payroll taxes at the end of 75 years. You know that payroll taxes can't be 70, 50% and then pay income taxes on top of that and state taxes because then we'd be like the Soviet Union where the workers would say, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Nobody would work. And one of the issues that you might might raise in all of this is that we assume, and CBO does the same thing, that the projected gross domestic product would be unaffected by how we pay for these things. No matter how much we tax the people, they'll still show up for work every day. And all the investment in capital that's assumed when we're raising all these gross domestic, rosy assumptions about gross domestic product will all happen. And... It's not clear that that would happen. Let's imagine, though, that instead of letting the taxpayers pay, that we, that we say we're going to screw the elderly. Now, I know looking at me, I'm elderly. You wouldn't want that to happen to me. But in any case, if that happened, you're the ones who are, this is going to happen to. Right now, the uh, premiums for Medicare is, are about $122 a month. They come right out of the people's Social Security checks, deducted before they get their check normally. That would almost quadruple in 12 years. It would be, and these are, these are constant dollars, they would go up by seven times in 22 years. By the end of the period, the premiums would be $3,200 a month in constant dollars, $2,008. CBO would be at $5,600 a month. Imagine that. But how do we think about that? Well, let's think about it in terms of what the median, the scaled median earner Social Security benefits would be like. And as you can see here, right now it's 8.7% of that scaled median earner's money. It would, it would go up three times in the next 12 years to 25%. It will be, go up almost six times in 22 years to 50% of the Social Security benefits. At the end of the period, instead of getting a check from Social Security, you would get a bill for your Medicare. And if CBO is right, the bill would be 80% of what your check would have been. So you don't get any money, and plus you have to pay 80% of what your checks would have been. That's not going to happen. Can't happen. And so the next thing is you, what you could do is share it, and that is let taxpayers pay for HI, and then you're going to have payroll taxes of 12%, and you're still going to have a Medicare uh, premiums that getting back to this simple way of talking about it, that is in terms of the median earner Social Security benefits, that would exhaust 60% of the median earner Social Security benefits if the trustees are right. If CBO is right, it will still take the entire Social Security benefit to pay the premium, even though taxpayers would be paying half the deal and would be paying 12 four times what the current uh, Medicare tax rate is. Okay. Now the question is, what can reform accomplish? What can you do? Now, all kinds of reforms have been suggested. Here are the usual reforms. The Bipartisan Commission on Medicare, essentially raising the edge of eligibility. Uh, fixing benefits at retirement. That's a standard kind of thing. That's what we do in Social Security, right? Social Security is wage indexed up to the point you retire. 
and then it's price indexed after that. So we've weighed and fixed it. Then the, uh, another re- uh, reform, one of the ones that I've been heavily involved in, is no first dollar coverage. Get rid of first dollar coverage in order to make people care at least what part of health care costs and in the hope that if people care what it costs, they might actually consume less. And then means testing. And as you're aware, the 2003 Medicare Modernization Act has limited means testing of Part B. So we have Part B means. So we have a little bit of means testing in Medicare now. Uh, what we do here is very onerous means testing. That is, uh, by the time someone gets to the level where means testing starts in the, in, in the MMA bill, we're taking away 80% of their benefits. And so now you'll get, I'll let you see where that takes you. But in the first thing is, here's just a little graph that shows you what each one of these kind of reforms that everyone has suggested does for you in terms of the size of the, uh, uh, of the non-entitlement taxes that actually are like mostly income taxes. And you're still at the and current Medicare, 68%, according to the trustees of all federal income taxes, would be going to health care. Uh, then we're looking at if the commission... You save almost nothing. Why do you save very little? You save very little because you're taking away the two lowest cost years of Medicare. So you don't really save much by changing the age limit. And second, and and actually they had some other things in in the if retirement technology, of course, has a fairly significant effect. That is, if you let the technology that exists when you retire, you get to keep that. Any changes you pay for. That's what that's what that notion is. The third one that's fairly draconian is to fix whatever health care looks like in 2011 and keep it there. And anything that's new after that, elderly pay for, which would mean by 30 or 40 years down the road, you'd be paying for almost everything uh, that that's not going to happen. Here are the other two reforms means testing. Which I which I indicated to you, the means testing that we're using here is one that's very uh, it's real means testing because when you get to where means testing first begins in Medicare Modernization Act, we're already taking away 80% of somebody's Medicare benefits at that income level. And it still only uh, gets rid of uh, – it only reduces by about a, less than a third, a fourth of what the deficits are going to be. It's real draconian relative draconian means testing. No first dollar coverage, on the other hand, gets rid of fully a third of these deficits, but they're still there. That is, none of these things uh, accomplish a lot. This is a percent reduction in, in projected Medicare expenditures after 75 years, and it gives you a feel for the best you can do is this draconian measure that takes away, that fixes benefits at 2011 and then never, and you have to pay for everything after that. And it just says, what's the real answer? And that's how this got started. And prepaying benefits for both consumption and health care through private accounts some way. Uh, and let me give you an idea of what, of what we have in mind here. Uh, because uh, workers would contribute a fixed percentage of their total wages to health insurance accounts. When they enroll, they, the, the thing buys an annuity. And the, the deductible is a fixed deductible that goes up with health care plus their total annuity is all a deductible. This is like a Roth IRA so that at the end, if you don't spend the money on health care, you spend it on anything you want to. And each year you get this annuity. Uh, this gives you an idea of what that actually does for you. Current Medicare is the red line. The, the black line at the bottom is reform Medicare spending. 
in the way we've talked about it here, plus the 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 uh, advantage that you get that when you don't spend your annuity, your health care annuity at the end of each year, you can spend it on anything you want to. And that is actually has significant value. It certainly re- increases the government's cost here because this is this is not a program that totally pays for itself. This program does not pay for itself. There are still expenditures, federal expenditures that have to be used to help this system along. This is not this is a reform that erases a lot of the deficit, but doesn't erase at all. The deficits are so big that unless we make people and, and the main part of this reform is making people care what it costs. And that, uh, without, uh, without doing that, you can't accomplish anything in these things. I'm not going to go into this risky part. Uh, I'll just get to the bottom line because we don't have lots of time here and then let you ask me questions about this. Okay, fundamental reform can revitalize Medicare. And how it revitalizes is it makes prices really matter. The problem you have is, you know, you get these hospital bills. Every price on the hospital bill is fiction. None of those prices mean anything. And in the only parts of medicine where prices mean something, cosmetic surgery, LASIK surgery, prices are falling. Technology in those areas improve quality and lower prices, just like every other part of the economy except healthcare. In every other part of elderly healthcare, improvements in technology may or may not improve quality. They never lower prices. There's no incentive for anyone to develop a technique that lowers the cost. That's not the way reimbursement works. And so only in those parts of medicine where people care what it costs do you get the things that we get in every other part of the economy. But over the short term, reform's not free. And we, if we went back, you could see what the black line looked like because reform is way above current costs at the beginning. The black line is above the red line. And it's above the red line until like 2030. Reform is not free. But just like any other investment's not free. If you want to have more to spend in the future than you're going to earn in the future, you're going to have to consume less now and invest it. And if we don't do that, we can't get anywhere. The only reason that I talk about private accounts here is that's the only way to make sure that you really invest it. Uh, we, you, we could trust the government to invest it for us, and maybe they would invest it. But the only way to make sure they invest it is we invest it ourselves. And inform eventually can benefit recipients and workers alike by bestowing real ownership of retirement benefits, but also actually making these things, these uh, uh, forecasts that we have that cannot happen and will not happen. It tries to make, define the way to, to make, to make health care is going to be uh, affordable for everybody because this is a system that has a lot of redistribution in it. Remember, low-income people have much smaller annuities. They have much smaller uh, deductibles. And, and the way this system works, everything above the deductible is totally paid for by Medicare. So this is, this is, this has redistribution. But of course, the current system has significant redistribution. That is because the payments into the system are totally income based. High income people pay a lot more for the same health care that they get at the end than low-income people do. And so this is a system that, while I, I'm not a, a, a fan of redistribution, we, the way we titled this originally is a health care, a Medicare reform that everybody can love because the side that likes redistribution, this has a lot of redistribution. The side that likes markets, this has a lot of markets, and it tries to do both. And now I'll let see what Stu has to say. Do I have?
already opened down on the bottom one. Oh, okay. Well, you can't <coughs> <try a> test. <laughs> hey, um, uh, just an aside, something that occurs to me is that uh, probably the most valuable thing I've learned about health informa- uh, about information technology is that um, when you want to go to full screen on a PowerPoint presentation, you just have to hit F5 uh, on the keyboard rather than searching around for the show slideshow. So um, that's very helpful. Uh, I'm going to talk about Medicare reform, and um, I think, you know, there, there are areas of agreement. I think there are basic areas of, of, of agreement across the board, and that is that um, clearly Medicare is a program that, um, that accomplishes a lot of good things um, and that uh, it's severely in need of uh, some different ways to thinking about how it's done. Um, I think there are lots of different ideas about how to do that, um, and I'm going to uh, go through some of Medicare's accomplishments, um, the feel-good part of this, and then get into the hard part of um, suggesting some things that um, might be done in Medicare. And um, I focus more on things that could be done to the program, changes in the way the program operates rather than changes in the finances of the program. But, um, and we can talk about more about that in the discussion part. Um, first of all, as uh, is no secret, Medicare beneficiaries tend to have more health problems and have lower incomes, uh, so they're more vulnerable, uh, and that's uh, one of the reasons that um, a uh, the health care health insurance market doesn't work uh, for elderly people. In 1965, half of people over 65 did not have health insurance because health insurers weren't interested in covering them. Um, uh, and uh, that's why the Medicare program was put into f- place in the first, uh, in the first place. Um, Medicare beneficiaries, and it's worked to a great extent, Me- certainly for beneficiaries. Medicare beneficiaries have fewer access problems than people with other types of health insurance. Um, they have better access to physicians than people who are privately insured. Um, they rate their, the performance of their current insurance coverage um, more favorably than people who have other insurance. Uh, and they have more confidence in their future care, even though when people find out that I run the Medicare Future Program at the Commonwealth Fund, the first question I usually get is, does it have one? Um, I think it does. The question is what it will look like. Uh, but there clearly are a lot of challenges. Um, I have a, you know, another one. This is the graph that I guess Tom didn't like. Um, the, this is uh, Medicare spending as a percentage of GDP. I don't think these numbers look all that small. Uh, certainly the growth in them looks large. Uh, and when you think about Medicare spending being projected to be over uh, a tenth of all the economic activity in this country, um, it doesn't matter who owns it. That's a big share. And that's just Medicare, not all health care spending. Um, if we talk about health care spending in 2008, uh, we're going to spend $2.3 trillion on health care. Um, and that's, uh, that's already a lot of money. Uh, it's certainly more money than, um, than any other country in the world spends on health care. Um, and uh, by 2017, that number is projected to go up to $4.4 trillion. So um, those numbers are plenty, uh, plenty impressive. But I'd point out that when you start projecting out to 2080, 2082, um, you're really getting to where 
you know, just consider that where we are now looking at it to 2082 is equivalent to being in the 1930s and trying to project what life would be like in the United States in the first decade of the 21st century. It's very difficult to sort of really feel confident that you really know what's going to happen. And as Tom says, a lot of this stuff probably will never happen. Um, uh, as George Schultz said, um, uh, no, as uh, Herb Stein said, um, if uh, something can't happen, it won't. Um, but the question is, what does happen? And that's the thing that everybody's concerned about. I'd also point out that back in the 1970s, there was a lot of hand-wringing among health economists because um, they were afraid that um, health spending would go up to 10% of GDP. And they thought that once health spending hit 10% of GDP, um, you know, it would be cataclysmic and the economy would fall apart. We're now at 16% of GDP projected to go up to 20% in 10 years. Um, Things may be falling apart, but not as fast, at least, as everybody had feared in 1970. Not, that's not to say that it's a good thing that it's happening. We need to do something about it. Um, but we need to be driven by what um, we think will work to avoid the situations that we all want to avoid. Um, as Tom pointed out, driving the, it drives the federal budget. Uh, this is uh, some numbers recently put out by the Congressional Budget Office. Um, found that um, unlike really the last 60 years when um, federal spending has been um, between 16 and 21 percent of uh, the gross domestic product in this country, um, if, if Medicare and Medicaid uh, grow uh, at, the, at the rates they're projected, um, that alone will drive um, government spending up to 33 percent of GDP, which again starts getting into an area where the United States has just never been and clearly doesn't feel comfortable being. Um, so there's clearly a problem. So Medicare is, is, um, is unique in that way in that it happens to be a, um, a health insurance coverage that's paid for by, um, largely by taxes, um, run by the government, and uh, where the Congress is the, effectively the board of directors of this insurance company that's the largest in the world. Um, and that makes, people, um, makes it different and makes some people uncomfortable. Um, but it's not unique in the rate of growth in spending. Um, this is another set of numbers produced by CBO, and it shows that um, what really is driving federal health spending is not the aging of the population, although that does add some amount, that little dark blue wedge. It is the effect of excess health cost growth, um, and that applies to Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance, and in fact, also uh, the health care that the uninsured need. Um, and that is the real problem. It's not a question of Medicare and Medicaid. And that leads you to the um, conclusion, I think, that um, it's not a question of whether the federal government pays for this or not. It's whether how we're going to deal with these um, tremendous health care costs that none of us want to be uh, prevented from accessing. Um, also, despite the fact that Medicare provides all these good things and makes its beneficiaries happy and, and certainly spends a lot of money on health care, um, you still have a lot of, uh, of the incidence of the cost of health care being borne by the individuals who are covered. Um, the average Medicare beneficiary spends 20% of his or her income uh, on health care, out-of-pocket health care costs. That's not, you know, over and above what Medicare covers and pays for. Um, and that's particularly a problem for people with uh, exceptionally low incomes. If you uh, have an income below the poverty level, you're on average paying 53% of your income on health care costs, which means you're not going to 
get the health care that you may really need um, given your health status. And if you ha- have poor health, regardless of your income, you're spending almost 40% of your income on health care. So there are still holes in this net um, that is uh, protecting the elderly. And, um, and uh, if you reduce... Uh, and it's really a trade-off, largely. If you reduce government spending on this stuff, then you're, what you're going to do is make those holes larger and the, and, and the burden is going to fall on these people. Another thing I would raise about, um, you know, well, it could be argued that uh, people become better consumers when they have uh, skin in the game, as it's uh, popular to say in Washington. Um, that's, uh, that's true in general for most goods. But you have to understand that health care – um, 80% of the costs are spent by 20% of the people, and they're generally spent by those people because they're sick. Um, and that um, raises the issue of how good a shopper you can be when you've just been diagnosed with cancer or multiple sclerosis and you're told you need some health care. Um, number one, you're sick. Uh, number two, you're worried. Uh, number three, uh, your health care is likely to be so expensive that actually you're going to blow through the, um, the deductible in any kind of high deductible um, policy. So the question is, how, whose um, spending is it really going to affect? Who's really going to have to be careful? And, the, and then the other notion is one of the key um, – I'm an economist too. I love market forces. Um, I don't think markets always work the way people dream that they do. Um, but one of the um, uh, rec- prerequisites for markets to work that any economist will put on the table is the availability of information to make good decisions. In this healthcare sector, we do not have that kind of information, and it's been found um, repeatedly that uh, for the kinds of decisions we ask people to make about their health care, there's not decision about effectiveness. There's not decision about costliness. Um, as Tom pointed out, if you look at the charge master for an individual hospital, you get a lot of uh, data but very little information that you can really use to make smart decisions about what it's actually going to cost and how good the care is going to be. Uh, we're moving in the right direction on that, but very slowly. Um, one one uh, upshot of that is that Medicare, as private insurance does, um, get, tends to get very little for its money. Um, this is some analysis that, Dartmouth Co- that was done at Dartmouth College that looks at the um, spread by um, local areas in the uh, spending per capita for Medicare beneficiaries and the um, survival index uh, for Medicare beneficiaries. And you see here that basically while spending is all over the place, um, uh, it doesn't seem to be particularly related to the quality of care that that spending elicits from the healthcare system. That's clearly something that's got to be fixed, and the way it can be fixed is by paying for quality care um, and measuring that care and making the information available to providers and payers and consumers. Um, I mentioned healthcare spending is concentrated. We, um, there was one study done that found that 20% of Medicare beneficiaries has five or more chronic conditions. Um, those, that group accounts for 66% of Medicare spending uh, each year. Um, and uh, the thing that really uh, shocked me about the data on that group of people is, is that among that group, they receive services from an average of 14 different physicians in a given year. 
Now, if you take our fee-for-service healthcare system and you um, see that these patients are getting 14 are getting services from 14 different physicians, and that there's nothing in the healthcare system that encourages those physicians to coordinate their services, and you've got people with multiple chronic conditions who desperately need that kind of coordination, you see where the problems are in healthcare. And it's not that the government pays for it; it's that it's being paid wrong in the public sector, in the private sector, and, in fact, out of pocket for those people who pay for their own care. Um, How do you deal with this? Well, one way is to pay providers and plans better. I think the underlying – one of the things that Congress does that's easy to do, and insurance companies do this too, is um, to cut provider payments. Well, you know that if you're going to cut physician payments by 10 percent, you're going to – if you feel like you're paying 10% less for those services than you would have if you didn't cut those payments. But that's not a long-term fix in the way the payment system uh, needs to work. What we need to do is move from a fee-for-service system that pays for more care, for more technically complicated care, uh, for more expensive care, um, and, and pays the same amount to a physician whether or, or a hospital, whether that physician is, as Gail Walensky, uh, former administrator of uh, Medicare, said, whether that, whether that uh, provider is um, a, a blue ribbon provider or, um, or, or, uh, or just avoiding indictment. Um, we pay the same amount. We don't care how, how good the provider is, and we don't care how well the provider works with the patients. We need to be able to measure chronic, to manage chronic illnesses better. Um, there are several attempts that the Medicare program is making. There are lots of attempts that private insurers are making, too, to help to improve that. We need to increase the value for the Medicare dollar um, by focusing on quality, generating information on quality. Uh, there have been strides made in that information, uh, in making that information available after you collect it. Uh, we need to focus on efficiency. Um, uh, to focus on why you have that uh, discrepancy between the high-cost areas and low-cost areas with no apparent gain for the patients. Uh, And we need to focus on better care coordination, that is, not just paying people for doing what they do better, but paying people for doing the right thing, the things that their patients need them to do. Uh, We need to protect beneficiaries. You can't just sort of walk out on the folks who are um, who need the care because they're not generally of, a, of the means that they can bear the kind of economic risk that we um, would put on them if we did that. Um, so it's not just as simple as cutting what the federal government contributes to this uh, process. Uh, and we need to improve the program, both because uh, we need a Medicare program in the future and we don't want to be facing the numbers that Tom put up uh, there, and also because the Medicare program being the largest payer in the country, um, uh, can serve as a model for the entire health care system. So um, that's we can do that with a variety of approaches to Medicare reform. We can do that by establishing quality standards. We can do that by um, uh, improving transparency, that is having real useful information that um, the people who receive that information can do something with. Um, not just putting information on the table. That doesn't work unless you can actually act on that information and be effective in the market. Um, we need to improve information technology. There's really no excuse for the paper-based healthcare system we have now. Um, Newt Gingrich has said that we feel perfectly comfortable using an ATM card, and there could be nothing more personal than our finances, than our own checking account. And yet we've, we've um, had all kinds of glitches about getting to a system where all our health information is available to the providers who need it. Um, and comparative effectiveness. Um, 
we largely now, we spend a lot of money on um, looking at the effectiveness of different drugs, uh, different procedures. Usually they're um, measured against placebos. Um, we really know relatively little about the kind of care that works for different kinds of patients with different kinds of conditions in different kinds of circumstances. And um, if we're looking for the market forces to help allocate resources appropriately between healthcare within the healthcare system and between healthcare and other services, we need to have better information on what works and what doesn't work because clearly you want to pay for what works and not pay for what doesn't work. And right now we know precious little about that. Uh, if we put a billion dollars a year into an, into an institution, public-private partnership, that would um, uh, help uh, identify what we know help identify what we need to know and generate the studies that would provide that information, that billion dollars is less than one-half of one percent of what we spend on health care each year. And um, I'm waiting for somebody to convince me that that wouldn't be worth the effort to do. Um, so um, there are a lot of changes we can make to Medicare. Um, a lot of them are being put on the table. Some of them are incompatible. Some of them are not. Um, and... Uh, I look forward to the discussion period. Thanks. Thank you to both Stu and Tom. Um, as Tom laid out, Medicare can't keep going on in its current form. Um, the pe but people who advocate sweeping Medicare reforms usually traffic in really big numbers like the following. If you wanted to put money aside in an interest-bearing account today to cover the gap that we're going to see between promised benefits and available revenues in the Medicare program alone, enough money so that what you put in the account today could, pay, could cover that entire gap. You'd have to put $86 trillion into that account, uh, an amount roughly six times the size of the entire U.S. economy. Now, you, reformers say numbers like that, and the public sort of tunes them out. They're too big. Most people think in terms of uh, hundreds or thousands of dollars, not in trillions. They plan for the foreseeable future and not the infinite horizon. But most importantly, the problem that Medicare's finances present us with is not going to manifest itself that way. It's not going to be an $86 trillion anvil that falls on our heads or the heads of uh, some future generation. More likely, the conflict is going to arise like this. Every year, Medicare is going to demand a little more revenue, a little more revenue than the year before. And Congress is going to meet that demand probably you know, by what, the way it's doing it now, by borrowing more and more money until the f public gets fed up with the ballooning size of the federal deficit. Then Congress is most likely going to look – well, then they're going to have a choice between tax increases and benefit reductions. Medicare's history suggests that their first choice is always going to – between those two options is always going to be tax increases. Uh, ever since Medicare's creation in 1965, uh, what Congress has done uh, through legislation as well as through regulation is expand and expand Medicare benefits, all the while and all the while uh, uh, pushing the cost onto workers and uh, and future generations. Uh, for example, over that time, premiums have sh uh, Medicare premiums for seniors have fallen by 50 percent as a share of physician spending, and Medicare itself um, has uh, been responsible for at least 11 different tax increases. 
So that dynamic where Congress uh, expands benefits and shifts the costs to uh, current and future workers has left us with a $450 billion Medicare program where each generation gets much more out of the program in benefits than they put in uh, in, in taxes or in premiums. And where an estimated 30% of that $450 billion goes toward medical care that doesn't make the patient any healthier or happier. So Congress will continue to push the growing cost of Medicare onto future generations by adding to the national debt until the public gets fed up with that. Then they're going to uh, increase taxes to the extent possible. And that'll probably work for a while. But the problem with this, this sort of pyramid scheme financing that, uh, that we see in Medicare is that eventually the marks catch wise. And they say enough. They realize they're not going to get out of the program what they're putting into it. And uh, when, uh, they, when American workers realize that keeping Medicare afloat in its current form is going to require a tax increase uh, equal to about a quarter of uh, their payroll, a quarter of all, every dollar that they earned, uh, Congress is going to find there's a limit to how much they can tax the American worker. So only at that point do I think Cong- will Congress have to consider fundamental Medicare reforms, including benefit cuts. Now, that day is sure, that day is going to be delayed, though, uh, if all reformers focus on is the cost of Medicare and Medicare's financial problems. I think there's, uh, Medicare does a lot to reduce health care quality, which may be an even more important reason to overhaul the program. For example, researchers who've combed through the available evidence have found that seniors enrolled in the Medicare program get what the evidence indicates is, the, is, the, uh, is high-quality care, the best available care, only slightly more than 50% of the time. Medicare is, and this, I think it has been mentioned, is not only blind in, uh, to quality in the way that it pays doctors and hospitals, but it actually pays providers more when they harm Medicare patients. Uh, as, as a result of medical error. In fact, uh, Medicare has just recently announced that c- this coming October 2008, it will stop paying, uh, after 40 years now, it will stop paying for some types of medical errors, stop uh, providing financial rewards for uh, providers who commit some types of medical error. In fact, uh, Medicare spending is often inversely related to the quality of care, and researchers have had a difficult time identifying any positive impact that Medicare has had on elderly mortality. Now, it's not enough to say that because the private sector exhibits similar quality problems, Medicare, um, and, th- and the reason for that is that Medicare shapes the private sector to a large extent. As Alan Entoven and I have argued in a recent op-ed, private markets have developed ways of paying doctors that don't reward them uh, when they... Uh, harm a patient uh, due to a, uh, by way of a medical error, and yet Medicare is one of many government policies that prevent the growth of those arguably safer ways of delivering care. Now, Princeton economist Uwe Reinhardt recently quipped that it's a huge mystery to him why uh, Congress has no interest in reducing dubious Medicare spending. I don't think he's, uh, evidently, I don't, I don't think he's ever seen a press account of what happens when Congress tries to do that. We're seeing some of that right now as Congress is trying to uh, figure out what to do with physician payments. For the past, I think, seven uh, or so years, Congress has tried to and failed to cut uh, physician payments. These are uh, cuts that are already in, uh, that are already scheduled, that are already law. And every year, Congress comes back to postpone those payment cuts because the physician lobbies come to them and ask them to do so. Um, every time that Congress considers these sorts of uh, uh, reducing dubious Medicare expenditures, uh, they're descended upon by uh, providers, by insurers, and by seniors uh, to prevent uh, that from happening. And unhappy seniors have 
even been known to trap helpless, frightened Congress critters in their automobiles while slamming their fists down on the hood to express their uh, displeasure with how their Medicare benefits have been tampered with. So the fact that Medicare beneficiaries and providers wield disproportionate influence over how Medicare operates uh, explains a lot, I think. It, it explains why the program continually expands benefits uh, for seniors and payments to providers at the expense of less politically ex- active voting blocks. It explains why Medicare blocks competition for potentially better, cheaper, and safer ways of delivering medical care. It also explains why we're unlikely to make seniors' health care better, cheaper, and safer if Medicare is leading the effort, if the Medicare bureaucracy is at the helm. The problem is not that Medicare can't influence the private sector. Uh, It's certainly large enough to do that. The problem is that the industry uh, has too much influence over Medicare and that incumbent producers can use that influence to make sure the money keeps flowing and to make sure that competition from uh, better, cheaper, and safer competitors don't threaten their incomes. Now, private markets have shown themselves uh, quite capable at producing innovations designed to make healthcare better, cheaper, and safer. Uh, the private um, uh, the uh, private insurers have introduced things like uh, like integrated uh, HMOs, uh, cost sharing. A lot of employers are moving toward more cost sharing in their plans. Uh, other tools of managed care that are uh, designed to keep. Um, costs down, and some of them that, are also, uh, that also have a positive impact on quality. But those sorts of innovations take forever to reach seniors because Medicare removes either their ability or any incentive to choose uh, those sorts of innovations. Finally, the one Medicare uh, reform that I think would have the greatest impact on the quality and efficiency of care is one that Tom spoke about. Um, it's also uh, most likely to contain the growth uh, of Medicare spending. Instead of letting Medicare di- dictate benefits and how providers are uh, benefits and payment policies, Congress could instead do this: give each senior a voucher and let the beneficiaries make decisions about what sorts of benefits they're going to choose and how their providers are going to be paid and how much those providers are going to be paid. This would present a problem if we gave everyone an equal voucher because obviously the poor and the sick would have a harder time purchasing a basic minimum level of health insurance. So Congress could adjust those vouchers to give the poor a little more, to give uh, those with high-cost conditions a little more to help them afford that basic uh, package of benefits. And a limited risk-adjusted voucher like this would uh, preserve each beneficiary's access to care and protect them from uh, the financial risk of a high-cost condition, which is the original uh, intent of Medicare, but in contrast to an open-ended entitlement, which is what we have now, uh, to more and more services, a limited voucher would contain the tax burden that Medicare imposes on workers. It would also encourage, uh, and and at the same time, it would improve quality because it would encourage seniors uh, to obtain a cost-effective health plan with quality innovations, and as important, it would allow seniors to do so uh, because it would take away the ability of incumbents to block uh, innovations that make healthcare better, cheaper, and safer. Now, benefit cuts are coming to Medicare. I think that uh, the, the trend lines that uh, that Tom was showing us make that point convincingly. There's just no way that the American people are going to tolerate the sorts of tax increases that would be required in order to keep Medicare in its current form. Switching to a voucher approach, I would argue, is the most humane way to approach this issue of benefit cuts because it would allow seniors to retain the benefits that matter most to them and, uh, and, and let go of some of the benefits that uh, they don't value very highly rather than let that process be, uh, be dictated by, uh, the, by politics, politics and the Medicare bureaucracy in ways that will leave seniors without the benefits, a lot of seniors without the benefits that they value most. So... 
that's the uh, that's the end of our of our presentations. And so I want to get to uh, any questions that you have for uh, any of us on the panel. I would ask two things: first, that you wait for the microphone to come around, and uh, next, that you identify yourself and uh, before you ask your question. Let me make that three things: identify yourself and make sure that it is actually a question. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, my name is Steve Hank, and I'm not affiliated. Please, please use the microphone. Uh, my name is Steve Hank, and I'm not affiliated. My question is to Mr. Guterman. Uh, you made a remark that kind of stuck out at me. You said that the, the market uh, has trouble working here because there's not enough information available uh, to the, the consumer. And I wanted to basically ask you, is, are you sure you don't have it, have it reversed? That if we had a freer market, then people, then the consumer would demand the information, and there would be more information. I mean, it it, it seems to me that that uh, people would much more uh, require the information in a in a free market, and it's because we don't have a free market now, in in so many ways in healthcare, not just medic, that that people are don't a uh, ask for this information. Well, um, the way I address that, I guess, is that, uh, uh, no, I got it right. Um, I, 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 um, uh, in, if, that's the, if, if it's the case that a free market would provide uh, more uh, uh, pressure to re release information, I guess there's a question between, there's a difference between information and usable information and accurate information. Um, the market... Um, uh, encourages people to provide, uh, to appear to be higher quality, to appear to be higher, um, uh, uh, higher efficiency. Um, but if, if, but the medical care system has trouble producing that kind of information regardless. I, I also would add um, that there's been plenty of evidence that consumers have trouble um, uh, or are reluctant to use that information even when they do have it available, uh, as in the state of Pennsylvania, where they found that providers actually were the big users of the quality information. But if, if, the, if the way we currently are structured, um, if there were uh, incentives that would, elic uh, that, that would elicit um, information, there would be um, certainly there's, um, there's a in strong incentive for consumers now, since third-party payers pay for most of their health care, to elicit uh, information about quality, if not efficiency, because they want to be able to go to the best doctor, the sky's the limit. And yet, where people go tends not to be particularly related to actual measures of quality that are validated in, in, in clinical um, uh, circumstances. So people go to the doctors that their friends recommend. Um, they go to doctors that are at prestigious institutions, some of which are good, some of which are not necessarily good, uh, some of which cost a lot of money, some of which don't cost a lot of money. Um, so I think, uh, you know, there's plenty of evidence that the healthcare market really doesn't function the way you'd like to see a market work. Um, in a perfectly functioning market, yeah, there would be pressure to produce that information, but still there'd have to be a way to make sure that that information got um, into the public sector. Now, the government can play a role in doing that. I mean, if they're, you know, it, it, the government's role in facilitating the operation of markets, uh, I think, is widely recognized and certainly should be doing more of that regardless of how you feel about whether we should be relying on a market to, as the sole mechanism for um, allocating health resources. 
<laughs> well, I think, I mean, uh, if we just look at other markets, I think, and computers are pretty complicated. I mean, uh, I, most of us don't know anything about them. You, have they gotten better? Yeah, they've gotten better. Have the companies that didn't make good ones, are they still around? They're gone. And they're gone because competition. And competition work here if there are incentives. Right now, there's no market in healthcare. And so it's very difficult to understand uh, what's going on. And the whole notion about insurance, it's not insurance. This is prepaid health care. Real insurance, uh, if you add house insurance that was going to pay to mow your lawn, which is what health insurance does, you, insurance is about r uh, random events that are truly insurable. And you could have health insurance, but that's not what we have. But Well, yeah, not require. I, I think what happens is the market does that. I mean, there's a, there's a hospital in Pennsylvania, I think it's in Pennsylvania, that guarantees heart surgery. If you have to come back, they pay. And, uh, and they're doing it even though Medicare won't reimburse them because it actually costs more. I mean, if you're, if you're giving some, if you're insuring that if someone has to come back, even if it's not the hospital's fault and they're going to pay, just like a car warranty, well, then Medicare at this moment will not pay more for that kind of insurance, even though it's cheaper in the long run. If they did that, if every hospital did that, Medicare would actually save money. So it's the system that doesn't let you innovate. I, I think the issue comes down to uh, a few things. One is the question of if consum consumers are controlling the money and care about the cost of uh, medical care more than they do now, then is that going to uh, create more demand for this sort of information? And is that, uh, if so, is that demand going to generate more information? I think the answer is yes, it will generate more information. Now, if you are going to, com if you're concerned about whether that information is going to become co comprehensible to the patient, and if that information is going to be reliable, in other words, uh, uh, is it going to be accurate? Is it going to be true? I think that you have to compare, well, do you think the private sector is going to do a better job of that, or do you think the government is? So um, which do you expect will do a better job of making it comprehensible? Uh, and in, uh, a health plan uh, that is marketing itself to consumers based on the quality of care that you get when you sign up for this health plan, or, um, or the government reporting on that, on that health plan, or, um, or coming up with, uh, with its own quali quality measures for that health plan. And I think that uh, there is, you know, there's an argument on both sides, but I think that you know, what's most persuasive to me is that the health plan, and this applies to the reliability of the information as well, the health plan will live and die by its reputation. And if uh, they get if they get a reputation for um, uh, providing care or information that is not um, information about their plan that's not reliable, then uh, they're going to suffer, and uh, patients are going to avoid that. I think that. When you've got government that's generating the information, uh, one of the downsides is, uh, as, as I alluded to, that providers can influence uh, that information and how it's used. Uh, an example is, I think, in the, in the mid to late 80s, a uh, government agency uh, did some research on back surgery, found that it wasn't as effective as the back surgeons were saying that it was. They recommended to CMS that CMS change its payment policy, and that was one of the few instances uh, where Congress actually voted uh, to enact serious cuts in a program's budget 
because, and it was because the back surgeons were so outraged uh, by this information that the government had generated. And I think that was the predecessor of ARC and what their, their budget was cut by 25 percent. Well, something. it was threatened. Or, it, was, it was threatened to be zeroed out. Right. It, was, it, was, it was threatened to be zeroed yeah, out. And, and that's one of the problems that you can run into if the government's generating this information. Now, Interestingly, what? that was not a vote for, uh, for fiscal discipline. That was a vote for more government spending, even though it appeared to be. Now, what makes you think that those same back surgeons would allow accurate information to have been distributed uh, if there was a market and not an ARC or its predecessor to dig up that information in the first place? Well, they don't, they don't have – I, I would just say that I would just say that they don't have as much influence over what uh, Kaiser or an Intermountain or an Aetna uh, says about the, va- the value of their But people choose service. their own back surgeons. Right. And, and if someone wants to – I don't see any problem or any public policy issue if someone wants to pay for – uh, you know, with their own with their own money for a, 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 a mode of care that doesn't have much of an evidence base to it. The problem I see is that when you start having people, I mean, I would love that if that were automobiles um, or if it were other consumer goods. Um, when you t- start talking about healthcare, you're putting people in positions where they start and they're clearly when they're faced with with having to spend their own money or more of their own money. They uh, end up deciding not only to forego unnecessary care, but also to forego necessary care. And if you could find me a way that they could choose the necessary care and forego only the unnecessary care, that would be great. Which, by the way, occurs in both the public and private sectors. Well, I think there's an answer to that, and that's, you know, there are a couple of ways uh, that that you can reduce uh, services without um, harming health. And one of them is the integrated HMO model. Another way is, is cost sharing. But I think we've kind of been talking about this one question for, for a long time, so I think we should probably move on to the next one. Uh, this gentleman had his hand up earlier. Hi, I'm John Glazer. I'm with the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and, and Medicare. Uh, the question, I just want to make a comment. Uh, you talked about, you use the figures like $86 trillion, and you say, well, we can't really use those figures, but yet they're in your advertising, and it is the infinite horizon, and that's a, which is a concept uh, projecting that far in the future has been rejected by just about every accounting organization in the country, including the Secretary of Treasury, as being a valid way to predict. So uh, you, you really... I don't think you should use those figures. But my only point is, is that we talked, we're, we're talking about only Medicare today. The real reforms need to come in the entire health care system in the country, not just Medicare. Medicare reflects the health care system, the growing cost of just about everything. And, and what we do, what we need in the country is, 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 is more reform, reform of our, of our insurance companies, reform of our health care plans. Uh, uh, do you have a question? From denial management, yes. Because I want to say I'd like, I'd, like the, I'd like the panel to comment on systems that are used in other countries, uh, particularly single-payer systems. Now, I'm not talking about s- socialized medicine that they have in Great Britain necessarily, but combinations of these. I mean, we have in this country, we're 43rd okay. in infant mortality in this country. And these other systems, it's much higher. These other industrial. I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to comment, comment on that. On I think my comment might surprise you, and that is, I'm, I don't see any convincing evidence that we deliver that our healthcare sector delivers better improvements in health, better health outcomes than other nations' healthcare sectors do. Uh, well, in terms of health outcomes, they don't. I don't, I don't see much difference uh, here or, or abroad, and, and, and we, could, we could argue about that. But usually, uh, from the free market side, what you hear is we do much better in the United States. So that's why I thought that might surprise you. I don't, I don't see where we do much better. Maybe on one or two measures, but other countries do better on, on other 
uh, measures. But we've got someone from the Commonwealth Fund here, so I'd like Stu to come. Well, um, we recently um, put out a study that showed that the United States ranked 19th out of 19 countries uh, in mortality amenable to health care. Um, I think we have a long way to go. I think there's uh, there's really uh, we recently did um, last year did a, a national health scorecard where we rated um, our healthcare system's performance um, on achievable uh, 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 benchmarks. Um, we looked at the variation across the country and just said, okay, what if this, the areas where there was lower performance were able to perform at areas reasonably close to the top of the distribution in the United States? And um, we came up with a, a score of uh, 66% for our healthcare system, which is um, not something that ought to provide. Um, uh, a lot of comfort to uh, folks in the United States. But the, the, um, the intention there is not to downgrade uh, our opinion of our own health care system, but to shake us into the realization that there's a lot of work to be done, both in Medicare and in the private sector, um, across the health care system, to be able to provide better care, to be able to encourage the provision of better care and more efficiency in health care so that it's accessible to more people. Gentleman in the back in the bow tie. Yeah, I if you could, Ralph Bradley from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, so um, I look at the um, national health expenditures from uh, CMS, and uh, I see from uh, 1996 to 2006 that the uh, reimbursements from private insurers has grown more rapidly than Medicare reimbursements, and then secondly, the ratio of administrative costs to benefits. Uh, for Medicare is about 3%, where it's about 13% for private insurance. So why not make the case that uh, we need uh, reform um, more expediently for the private insurance sector than we do for Medicare? Well, I mean, one one issue here is that the private insurance sector is heavily regulated, and, uh, and that makes it – it's not actually uh, – a, a private insurance sector in that sense. And I'm not convinced about the uh, the overhead numbers that people like to, to bandy about, but I don't think that's, that's the real issue here. I think that the private sector, if we could free up a lot of things that would allow them to actually issue insurance in the same way that you issue any other risk, because these are about risks. And it's a very peculiar thing that in Everywhere else in economics, when we talk about uh, risk, we're not talking about expected expenditures. We're talking about we're not talking about expectations. We're talking about something that might happen. In the healthcare sector, risk a risky patient is someone who has a high expected cost, and risk adjusting is adjusting to expected cost, not adjusting for risk at all. It may well be the people that are chronically ill, for example, who have the lowest risk, because they may have the actual variance around their expected expenditures is very small. And we really need an insur- a private insurance system that can actually be risk the way any other kind of insurance is. And under current legislation, that can't happen. You can't even have competition across the states. Across And, and although I'm a, a strong states' rights person, I don't, even though I would like the federal, in this case, to have the world to be different, yeah, I think that there are a lot of things that we can do, and we can free it up, and uh, that's not what we're talking about here. And I think that's an issue that uh, you're raising. Um, I think that we, we definitely do need uh, reform in the in the under 65 part of uh, our healthcare sector, the private sector. I, one of the reasons that I think um, uh, we need reform is because we've largely cl- created for uh, – 
for those with private insurance is a situation similar to what we have in Medicare, where nobody cares about the cost of their insurance policy. Or if they do, it's very hard for them to economize on their insurance because they don't control the decision. Their employer controls the decision. They can't really recapture the savings if they say to their boss, hey, you know what, I'd rather the, um, uh, a lower-cost policy. And so um, – and so we don't have the sort of market dynamism in the private sector that I would like to see in the private sector, nor do we have it in the, in, in the public sector. With regard to uh, the issue of administrative costs, uh, we published at the Cato Institute a book called Medicare Meets Mephistopheles. It's actually a satire about Medicare, maybe the only one you'll ever read. And it takes on this issue, and it, it, it makes the point that, yeah, uh, that 3 percent figure, the Medicare's administrative costs are 3 percent of claims, that leaves some things out. But uh, and yes, the administrative costs for private insurance are, are greater. But uh, but the reason for that is that private insurance companies do a much uh, a better job of trying to contain spending than Medicare does. The reason why Medicare is and I should I should throw in another reason why that that three percent figure is too low is because it doesn't count the deadweight loss of, of taxation associated with raising government revenue to fund Medicare. So, um, but wherever, whatever the actual number of it uh, is, the actual uh, share of uh, Medicare expenditures that, uh, or the administrative burden of Medicare is much lower than it should be, is what uh, this book argues, because Medicare should pay more attention to the money that's going out the door, rather than just shoveling money out the door. About well, that's, that statistic I mentioned earlier, that about 30% of Medicare expenditures go toward care that provide, appears to provide no value, is one indication of that. Um, let me uh, – I, I really uh, – there are a couple of, um, of uh, specific issues with the private insurance um, uh, companies. Um, uh, one is I don't see that they've been more successful at, uh, at containing health care costs than, than uh, the government has. Um, you know, two is I, I agree that uh, probably private insurance companies' administrative costs are overstated and, and Medicare's are understated, and I certainly agree that Medicare's are too low and should be much higher because um, – but that's, you know, a decision that gets made uh, in a, through a larger process that has nothing to do with health care. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm always amazed at our private insurance market because we've managed to achieve two things that should be contradictory at the same time. Um, we've managed to maintain a fragmented health care delivery system while at the same time having – massive consolidation in the health insurance market so that really only a couple of insurance companies control health insurance around the country, um, while at the same time there's, there seems to be no uh, ability to coordinate across the health care delivery system to make sure that health care is delivered in a coordinated way. Um, and um, if you want a sort of an inkling of how the market works, um, think about the pressure of somebody with HIV-AIDS uh, in, an, in, a, in, a, um, in a private, a totally private insurance market and what kind of premiums they would have to pay, um, they certainly would face a lot of pressure uh, to pick a slimmed-down insurance uh, policy um, because they'd face incredibly high costs uh, in that kind of market. But is that what we want them to have to face? That's what the market will do. Isabel? Uh, I'm I'm uh, Bell Sawhill from the uh, Brookings Institution, and uh, I was uh, interested in this whole question of how we get more value for the dollar we spend on health care in Medicare or otherwise. 
And uh, because if you don't do that, then it seems to me you are either going to have higher cost burdens on individuals or on uh, the taxpayer or on uh, providers in terms of foregone income. And you've got a in your Commonwealth uh, report a very nice chart that's labeled ES1 that shows a whole bunch of uh, reforms that seem to have been costed out, if I understand right, and I haven't read the report, but these are Lewin Group estimates, presumably. Uh-huh. And if you look at the 10-year cumulative uh, cost savings, they look pretty great, particularly if we could reduce obesity and things like that, which we have to wonder about. Um, but um, if you were to compare those cost savings to what we're spending on Medicare, they probably are, well, I hate to say a drop in the bucket, but they're not, they're not real large. They don't solve the problem that Tom Saving laid out in the beginning. So um, how, do we, uh, how do we think about that? I hear a big, uh, the, the standard uh, spiel nowadays, particularly from those who are more progressively oriented, seems to be, well, we have to reform the whole health care system to uh, get more bang for our buck. And um, then we have uh, other somewhat more uh, radical proposals like the one that um, to provide vouchers to everyone that have a fixed uh, limit on what we're paying for health care. And I would like to think we could take the first route, but I'm not convinced that we aren't going to have to go partly towards the second route because I'm not sure the first route is going to be enough. So comments from any of you. Um, well, let me comment on the on the, the report that you're referring to, uh, which is our report, Bending the Curve, which looks at a set of 15 options um, for improving health care and saving money. Um, when we did a combination of universal coverage and a set of those options that, um, you know, weren't, didn't overlap so that um, we could uh, – reach uh, uh, some reasonable estimate of what they w- might save. Uh, and again, it, it's might. You know, it depends. It, the devil is always in the details and how that's done. And some of these, some of the decisions that would be required are extremely po- difficult political decisions and social decisions. But um, you, the estimate is that we'd save $1.6 uh, trillion over 10 years, which is a, a heck of a lot of money. But it's less than 5% of the $33 trillion that our health care system, and this is the entire health care system, uh, is projected to spend over that period of time. So you can, you can look at it two ways. One is you're shaving ice off the iceberg. Um, the other is uh, you can make an awful lot of drinks with <laughs> With that ice, and 1.6 trillion dollars enables you to do a lot of things. It first of all provides health care, universal health care coverage, which you know helps us in two ways. One is you know the there's much made of the moral issue of of allowing everyone access to the health care system, but there's also a practical issue of if you're going to improve the health care system, it really helps to have everybody under the umbrella. Um, so that any policy changes that do improve the health care system, however you decide to pursue them, uh, apply to everybody and not don't have this sort of automatic leakage from the system that we have now. Um, uh, and and $1.6 trillion gives you a lot of – frees up a lot of um, – of uh, resources to be able to make improvements either in the healthcare system or elsewhere. Um, does that solve the problem? No. I mean, if you look at the numbers that uh, Tom's projecting out to um, 2080 – um, what could you do to avoid that? I mean, the only thing you can do is sort of remember Malthus and, and note that, you know, the human race didn't starve out in 1600, uh, and therefore um, 
you know, we, we're, we've got to find some solution. We, basically, the answer is we've got to try everything we can that helps make the healthcare system better. But I think that one, one solution is not to just sort of focus on health insurance spending, company spending, or Medicare government spending, but to focus on spending in the healthcare system as a whole. And that's the main point that we tried to make in that report, is that the relevant issue is not what some company spends or what some person spends or what income goes into some doctor's office or, uh, uh, pockets or some hospital's pockets, but how much the healthcare system spends as a whole. And if we hold the line at the current 16% of GDP, we're talking about $3.6 trillion in health spending in 2017, as opposed to the $4.4 trillion that's projected uh, under current circumstances. That's, that's a big difference. And one might ask uh, the people in the healthcare se- sector who make the money from providing those services, what is it we're paying for? The, uh, in the difference between that $3.6 trillion and the $4.4 trillion that is buying us anything. And how can you justify, instead of having the, it's really a baseline issue, instead of having the baseline be what's projected to, actually, to, to occur, have the baseline be what we'd like to see happen, and then ask the question, why do we need to be anywhere but there? Well, I think I'd want to say, first, I don't know the right amount of the share of GDP that ought to be health care, just as I don't know the right amount that it ought to be computers or any other product, and that's what markets are about. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the share of GDP that we're spending on health care. I would argue that, that if we had markets, we would, we would be spending less, but the rate of growth of that spending might be exactly where it is now. There's a reason why, uh, as, and as some of you get older, as I am, you'll recognize that a lot of the uh, – you're going to be replacing your body parts. And uh, <laughs> those are just those are facts of life, and uh, and it, it may be, and of course we've expanded what we call healthcare too. Now I'm I'm very much opposed to worrying about uh, and having the uh, the food police out to making get rid of obesity. It's not clear that actually uh, that since. obese people may die much younger. We already know that tobacco is good for Social Security. Let's have a lot more smokers. And it's probably good for Medicare. So we need a lot more smokers. You're not going to save any money by getting rid of smokers or obese people. You're going to cost you money. Let's, get, let's have more people eat fatty foods. But I, you know, I, I just think freedom means something to me. And uh, I, I think it's more important than in, in how much we're spending on health care. I'm concerned about the fact that a lot of our solutions are to tell everyone what to do all the time. And I don't think these 535 guys that are right over, or guys and gals, have a clue about any of this. And they're going to make the decisions. They don't know as much as any of us right here. And, and if any individuals are a lot smarter than those people think they are. And that's why the welfare system, the people they thought were dumbos, were able to game the system on them. Those people, consumers, are smart. And when their money's at stake, they're even smarter. And we have to give them some credit, and we give them no credit. We think we know more than they do. And I'm, I'm very suspicious when I'm telling people I know more than you do about how you ought to live. I think that's a very bad – and we ought to have some really good evidence, and if we don't have it, we shouldn't be trying – we might try to convince people to live the way we want them to live. I, don't, I just think it's a mistake. I'm sorry. That, that really has nothing to do with Medicare. <laughs> it just says well, freedom well, is to, important. To, to, uh, I'll, I'll drag it back. Um, and not, not that I mind talking about freedom. I think uh, 
I'd, I'd just like to make one comment, and we can take one more question, I think. Okay. Um, and and uh, to answer your question, Isabel, the, uh, the, the Commonwealth Fund report has a lot of good ideas for improving the quality of, uh, of services and, and the efficiency of those services, such as uh, health information technology, more information on uh, medical effectiveness and cost effectiveness, pay for performance, coordination of care. I think these, would all, these are all valuable improvements or, or would be valuable improvements. My concern is that if it's Medicare that's trying to implement these, uh, these changes, is trying to, sh uh, to shape the uh, health care sector uh, to implement these ideas, that these ideas are they're going to be um, either ineffective or they're just going to cost more money even when, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that we shouldn't be spending any more money to get more quality. We should be able to get, spend less money and get more quality. I think that if it's a, if it's a market-driven process where individuals can pick a plan that uses better health information technology, pay for performance, coordination of care, then it's very difficult for providers to thwart that. And I've got a, one, of, one of the handouts is an article I wrote on pay for performance in Medicare where I made that case that um, the, the problem with Medicare uh, driving that process, uh, reward, pay for performance means that um, Medicare would be paying hospitals and doctors more uh, for providing qu high quality care and less for low quality care. The problem with Medicare driving that process is that the physicians and the hospitals have so much influence over what those rules are going to be that they're probably not going to happen unless uh, it involves a lot more money and not really any penalties for, for low quality care. And you have to remember what quality is. A lot of that quality notion is that people follow the – it's not that the better outcomes are better because there's no way to talk about that. They're not talking about outcome. They're talking about if you give someone a prescription, making sure they actually take the medication. And then you're – if they do, you're a high-quality person. That, that's not what, what we think about in quality is whether the repairs work or not. That's the that's what quality is, and they don't have a way of looking at that. Well, yet. well, there are. I We're think there. I think there are. There, there, there's there, there's some evidence to suggest that these would actually improve outcomes, and, and not just what they call process measures. But, but they're I, not about outcomes. Well, that's let me the, let me let me. Uh, it would be good to have them be about outcomes. The the it's true that uh, well, there are some outcome measures actually listed, and there there are a lot of uh, potential measures to use in uh, paying for performance, um, and uh, the the. The area is certainly evolving, and we're not where we want to be in the end uh, on that. But there is an argument for a mix of process and outcome measures because, in fact, um, you can be a wonderful doctor, have done everything that you should have done for a patient, and have the patient die. And you don't want to be, have a situation where you're going to penalize the doctor for that. You want to make sure that they do the right things if you believe that those right things are going to produce fewer deaths in the, in the aggregate. Um, and I think I'd also point out that, you know, if you're concerned about Medicare deciding what gets paid for, um, uh, well, A, because they get influenced by providers, certainly talk to providers about how much faith they have in Medicare um, uh, uh, paying. They, they, they certainly feel threatened and they certainly feel spurred to action. Um, uh, uh, in terms of delivering care differently. The other thing is that um, we're paying for performance now. We're paying physicians to do more. We're paying physicians to do more complicated and expensive things, and we're paying physicians to do services, some of which patients don't need. We're paying for performance now. The idea is paying better for performance. Um, I think we can only take one more question, and I was reserving that for Dr. Tang from the Cleveland Clinic. Um, 
because of the long journey she made to be with us today. Thank you. So I'm Catherine Tang. I'm an internal medicine physician at the Cleveland Clinic. And um, I actually wanted to ask you a question. I, I, you know, we've talked a lot about um, quality and all these other things that we could talk on and on about. But I actually wanted to ask you about resident teaching. Uh, what's happening with Medicare reform involving the training of our residents and the, re- and the training of our future doctors. Um, my understanding is that we've had several grand rounds on this um, topic recently. My understanding is that Medicare pays for at least 80% of residency training. And as Medicare is... Um, you know, potentially going bankrupt. Uh, I think the concern is what's going to happen to the training of our future doctors. Well, I would want to say right off that we, that it should. That's not what Medicare ought to be doing. Not that not that you don't want subsidies necessarily to to train doctors. And if you had a free market, uh, you, you you'd have the normal kind of subsidies for education, and that's all. But Medicare shouldn't be doing that. I mean, somebody else might do it. And so and those expenditures, when we, when we talk about Medicare, we really want to take those out because that's a – we're looking at – the growth we're talking about are reimbursements in, in general when we analyze this problem and not the issue of other things that Medicare happens to do. And it does, it does happen to be in the, in the doctor training business, which is kind of peculiar because the doctors are not just working on seniors or on disabled, which are the two things that Medicare is about. So it's a strange kind of thing that's been put in together with, with Medicare. And, but your question involves a, a different issue, is how should we as a nation subsidize the education of one profession over another? And uh, that I, I don't want to comment any more on that. There, but it, does, it shouldn't be part of Medicare, though, in any case. There, uh, there, certainly we could devote a whole session to medical education uh, payments and how Medicare uh, uh, deals with them. Um, I, you know, the justification, I guess, was uh, that it was part of, it was always considered part of hospital costs, and I think part of that was that it was considered some sort of social good. One could argue, I guess, that if, if you're projecting shortages of physicians um, in the future, that um, you know, the, it's in the nation's interest to produce the right number of physicians. It's also in the nation's interest to, to produce the right mix of physicians, and that's something that Medicare has been um, uh, notably uh, ineffective at affecting. Uh, particularly geriatricians, which is directly related to the treatment of Medicare beneficiaries. But that's, as I said, that's, as and, and Tom said, that's, that's a whole different discussion that um, I think is a very interesting and important discussion, but not uh, one we can have here. Okay. Well, then, I want to thank you all for coming uh, and uh, joining us today. I want to thank our panelists uh, for this excellent discussion, and I'd li- like to invite you all to uh, join us up for lunch in the Winter Garden. Thank you. Thank you.